This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. You've almost certainly heard the expression, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, which refers to the idea that it's impossible to revert a situation back to its original state after it's become commonplace. I've always been a little bit confused by this term because it's almost always used in the negative as though the new state of things is worse than the old state of things. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, because who the heck would want to put a genie back in a bottle? I mean, sure, every genie story ever told is a lesson in unintended consequences, but before any of that happens, you get those three wishes. Modern technology is like this. There are a lot of unintended consequences. But there aren't many people who want to do away with it. And in a new book, psychologists Eric Pepper, public health researcher Rick Harvey, and health writer Nancy Foss have argued that we don't need to. But we do need to acknowledge a very fundamental truth. That the things modern technology does to our bodies often conflicts with what millions of years of evolution has prepared our bodies to do. The result, they say, is a confusion of our instincts. And that means aches and pains, stress and psychological vulnerability, brain drain and exhaustion. But Pepper and his co-writers argue that it doesn't have to be this way. Technology may have hijacked our lives, but there are a lot of things we can do to align our evolutionary programming with our modern existences. Eric Pepper is a professor at the Institute for Holistic Health Studies at San Francisco State University and an international authority on stress management, biofeedback, and holistic health. He last joined us in 2018 to talk about a study that indicated a simple change in posture could impact test scores for students, and he's back today to talk about tech stress. Eric Pepper, it's great to have you back. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share our findings and our research, because we are all embedded in technology, especially now with COVID-19. There's a comic strip, an old Peanuts cartoon that leads off chapter eight in your book. And in it, Charlie Brown is talking to his sister, Sally, and, and his head is down and his back is curved forward. And he tells her, this is my depressed stance. And then in a later frame, and in the very typical sort of Charlie Brown way, he says, the worst thing you can do is straighten up and hold your head high because then you'll start to feel better. The next image in the book shows the way people hold themselves when they're looking down at their mobile phones. And a few pages later, there's this photo of this person looking down at his laptop. And wouldn't you know it? In all of these images, it's that same Charlie Brown posture. What is going on there? What is so interesting is that without knowing, as you just pointed out, we look down. And as we look down, we look very clearly at that little fine text. We concentrate in our own way. We lose our periphery vision. And we move into a world by which we feel almost more depressed or defensive because it is the body position in the past from evolution where we are collapsing. It's like the defeated position. Now that posture becomes the conditioned cue to pull back those memories. We lose awareness of the periphery. We can see a radical increase in pedestrian injuries, for example. Because people are looking down at their phones and they're not, they're not paying attention to their peripheries. Yes, and if you... If you are not driving, but if you're sitting at home and listening, if you quickly look at a point very nearby, then you realize your head goes forward, you're concentrating, and you're becoming less aware of what is around you. 
this is what our tech does to us, right? Like, my laptop right now is very close to me. My phone is always very close to me. You're always looking just a few feet away from you. Yes, and many of what people don't realize is that's the opposite or different how we used to be as a hunting and gatherer. Imagine walking through a jungle, through the savanna, and not being aware at times of what's going around. You would be lunch for some predator very soon. When we look far away, our eyes relax. The lens flattens, the eyes diverge. It relaxes the eyes, which then relaxes the neck and shoulders and the body. We can breathe more easily. But yet when we concentrate very hard, we collapse. And suffice it to say, this brings us into a state of being that kept that way for a long period of time is not healthy for us. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's in the humorous way, this is now called sitting disease. But Mm. (laughs) think about it. When we are sitting under high stress, it's the opposite. In the past, and that's where the evolutionary perspective is so useful to think about this, a danger occurred, we got excited, we either fought or fled, and we survived and we could regenerate. Now we stay in this elevated arousal of which we're totally unaware. Yeah, and our tech is doing that to us, right? Like your book describes numerous instances. Let's talk about smartphones for a moment here. Numerous instances in which adaptive behaviors that were once very successful become maladaptive or even harmful when they're put into action by modern technologies. And you write that smartphones do this to us in a few ways, invoking hypervigilance and offering social information. Talk about that for a moment. The hypervigilance is obvious because any time there's a signal in the periphery, we tend to react. And I remember many years ago when I was a little kid and my mother used to have the television on all the time. You know, I had no control. It was most interesting. I would walk into the room, try to talk to my parents, but continually my eyes was drifting to the screen. (laughs) And all of us have known that if you go on an airplane, good luck right now. We find when I sit next to somebody, they open up their laptop. You know, I thought I had good manners, but unknowingly, I peek at their screen. I peek at their cell phone. Now ask about that. Why do I do that? One, it is really automatic survival mechanism. That's change the signal becomes a trap for us to orient. And there are two reasons, at least. One, it's kind of the fight, flight, or food sources. I need information. And the second is it's a way of social connections. The reason I keep responding to all the social media, because I want to be updated what is going on socially. If we were, when we were a very small tribe, it was very important to know how the power structure went. Because if I didn't know that, didn't know the kind of local gossip in a sense, I would not survive. These are really strong evolutionary forces at play, both hypervigilance and sociality. So, okay, let's talk about how to unwind this, particularly related to cell phones, I think. Like, I don't think we're going to convince anyone to give up their phones. I don't think that's what you're suggesting in in this book. But how do people bring their relationship with their phones into better alignment with their evolutionary programming? So let me give a few pragmatic suggestions. And one is an experiential one. Basically, When you ask students who are together and you simply ask, did you ever have the experience when a friend of yours, when you're together in a group or talking to the person, all of a sudden they react to their cell phone vibration or notification. They quickly pick up their cell phone, look at it. They may even text Mm. or do something and then put it away. 
what do you experience? Universally, the other people who experience this, they feel dismissed. They feel like there's a break in social bond. And yet they all do it, or not all, but most of them do it. Yeah. So once we understand that, then with groups and families, I recommend some very simple things. One, when you are in a social setting, whether it's dinner, whether it's for coffee, or even when we are don't, when you're doing Zoom or Skype, as we are doing now, put your cell phone away. Do not have it present so the notifications don't trip you off. Turn them off in those social settings. It's simple, but it will deepen the emotional relationship. Let's talk about media consumption. You've written that our bodies aren't wired to react to real and artificial images in different ways. And while, you know, we might be able to understand logically that there's a difference between something that is truly in front of us and something that's on a screen, the stress responses aren't notably different. Is that right? Totally correct. In some ways, advertising knows that. We wouldn't spend billions of dollars in advertising or media if we didn't think it had an effect. Through evolution, everything we saw with our eyes was real. Now, through our eyes, we see something on a screen. Our brain cannot really discriminate between that visual video or movie screen that occurs and reality. If you see a horror movie, I know there are always people for whom it doesn't work. Most people, after they've seen the horror video or movie, and if they were now walking outside and they hear some strange noise, they feel much more terrified than if you had seen a very tender, warm, emotional movie. Right. It's if what we saw is real, we react and we don't know it. That's the danger, the challenge of media just before going to sleep, for example. We get so excited, but we keep sitting. We keep sitting. Our bodies is aroused but we don't dissipate it by our normal pattern of exercise or movement. So like an action movie or a horror movie or whatever might invoke in us a flight response, but we're sitting or we're laying in bed or whatever. And, and so our bodies aren't doing what we're evolutionarily programmed to do when we have that sort of stimulus. Yes. So what happens is our glucose levels go up because this is danger. So we better, you know, have more sugar in our bloodstream so we can run. Our adrenals dump out, and all of a sudden, we are sympathetically aroused. Our blood pressure may go up slightly, and it doesn't dissipate. The problem is usually in stress, not that we get stressed. Stress is healthy. We wouldn't be alive. The real challenge is after the stressor goes away, how do I recover? And from an evolutionary perspective, we would probably recover by either running away or killing the animal or then being in a place of safety where we can curl up. Now, however, we keep sitting in the same chair. And it's no wonder that our health is significantly reduced as we keep sitting and sitting and sitting or just lying down while our brains are being stimulated by these dynamic images which, get, which increases that arousal in us. The challenge is we are often unaware. I imagine that one way to address this would be to take stock of what we're consuming with a more thoughtful eye toward what those images, what those media are doing 
to our bodies in an evolutionary way of thinking. Absolutely. And what is so interesting is, if you look at it, this is no different than almost what all major religions have said. Hmm. It says, you know, do something very peaceful, do to thy neighbor like themselves or whatever. Uh, you know, think of positive images. And we know if we evoke or look at positive, warm, caring images or hear stories like that, we feel more glowy. We feel better. You know yourself, if you do a gift to somebody, not to get them to pat you on the back, but so they somehow feel better, you know, it's most remarkable how you feel. There's a classic exercise I do with my students. I recommend to everybody. And that is just to think of some of people who have done something for you, which you never thanked them for, and which have impacted your life. So that really, but maybe a neighbor, it could be a family member, could be a friend. They did something that impacted your life significantly and helped you. And you did not thank them. Now what you do is you write a little 300 word, little acknowledgement of that, a gratitude letter. Then you call them up. And it used to be you have to actually visit them to visit. And then you read this gratitude letter to them, how what they did has impacted you positively. And you thank them for that. It is so impressive when you do that. Because all of a sudden, you can they feel more emotionally connected with you. And we live in a world where we're so much more disconnected. You feel the warmth. For 80 to 90% tearing occurs, they cry because it's so heartwarming. Hmm. And the effect lasts for not just for five minutes. The person feels better for the whole day and sometimes longer. We don't get that same benefit when we buy a meal for somebody or something else. When you really focus on developing these connections that technology has robbed from us in, in a way, this has a, a beneficial effect on our psychology and our physiology. Well, I would say it hasn't totally robbed us. It can rob us from all that. Mm. However, for many people, especially now, imagine being isolated in COVID or sheltering in place and not having some form of Zoom or Skype or communication. Now, at least I can have a dinner together, although it's not the same, I must say, than having the person there. But there is some connection. So for some people and for many people, this allows parents who are far away to be connected with their children, friends, etc. So technology is not bad. It is just appropriate use. You need to realize that it does trip our evolutionary pathways. Another instance of what you call an evolutionary trap is our constant connection to sources of light. We're wired to be awake when there's light. We're wired to be asleep when it's dark. Modern tech has really well, messed around with that cycle. What are the consequences to our bodies? Having light on at night is abnormal in a sense because it never really existed. We probably were in caves. When light occurs, melatonin tends to be suppressed. Our sleep gets disturbed. So the biggest consequence is disrupted sleep. Disrupted sleep is a first factor for almost any illness, immune suppression, cardiovascular disease, you name it. It's easy to say, well, okay, let's just 
turn off the lights then when the sun goes down. <laughs> That's a much, much harder thing to do to actually implement into people's lives. What are some other things people can do to undisrupt themselves in this way? There are a couple of things we can do to undisrupt before going to sleep. Turn off the digital screens. At least we have less blue light. That's simple. Two, arrange your bedroom that there is no light leakage. That means make it totally dark. That means turning off all these little red lights that tells you your equipment is flashing. It may mean putting a black curtain over the windows because when cars pass by, they'll bring light into the room. It means turning off the notifications on your cell phone or so that keep beeping the whole night. And when you do that, it's remarkable how sleep will tend to improve. Not perfectly, because we all are different. And then before going to sleep, it's often helpful to do a relaxation practice, a meditation practice. There are many different ways of prayer, a ritual by which sleep goes easy. You can do a relaxation practice to let the body relax, allowing you to drift into sleep. And finally, it helps to, to look at our breathing patterns. If we can breathe lower, we do better. There's been a lot of focus in recent years about the health consequences of a life spent sitting down. You've mentioned this several times in this discussion, but this is often discussed in terms of how long periods of immobility is bad for our bodies. But this isn't just an issue of posture and tension. It's another one of these evolutionary traps because as you've written, we're actually wired to conserve energy as much as possible when we can. So when we're sitting, that's sort of what we're doing. Yes. And when we sit, you know, ideally the world would be safe historically. And we could then start regenerating with a sitting. And now we give a competing signal into our eyes that says, the world, I have to work. There's a conflict now, almost like a, a relaxation, regeneration response and an arousal response. And the other part people don't realize about sitting is that if you think of your stomach, your spine tends to curl like a letter C, compressing your abdomen, which affects the digestive tract and the functions of that. You tend to breathe more shallowly in your chest. So it has a very subtle but very important negative effect. And the final piece is that we have a second heart. We think of our heart in our chest. Our calves are often called the second heart because our calf muscles, when we walk and move, pump back the venous blood back to our heart so our heart has to work less. When you sit, you don't do that. The blood almost pools in your legs. Your body has to just work harder in a very paradoxical way. Okay, so I'm a big convert to the standing desk. Most people are at least familiar with that option these days. What are some of the other things you found that most effectively get people onto their feet and moving instead of sitting? I think there are a couple. One is the recognition we are often unaware. So what I now use, I use a little program called Stretch Break. It's free. There are many others like this. It runs as an app on my computer. And every 20 minutes, it pops up. It guides me through a little movement. It's really useful that way. That's one. Two, standing is great, but many people don't want to stand the whole day. I think you can alternate standing and sitting. 
So I'm very lucky I have a desk that goes up and down. There's a photo of you in the book with your desk going up and down, yeah? That's right. And for many people, I would use a stool that goes right back to the Middle Ages when the monks were, you know, handwriting the manuscripts. They were not sitting on a chair. They were sitting on a stool. And look at those old pictures. Then you see that the surface of their desk was not flat. It was slanted. So they could be sitting up more straight and have less tension in their neck and shoulders. So the ergonomic piece is also critical. Let's talk about something that was really surprising to me. The body tension that you write about caused by using a computer mouse. You write that there's this physiological reaction that happens in people's bodies when they're using a mouse. And this was so surprising to me because this feels... I mean, even in the word mouse, right? It sounds cute. It sounds like completely innocuous. But talk about what happens when we're focusing on using a mouse. What happens to our bodies? So when you're using a mouse and you're looking at the screen, then you're concentrating. Without any awareness, you're bringing your arm slightly forward and move it sideways. There's a slight level of tension for most people in their trapezius, the shoulder muscles or their deltoids. They are totally unaware of it. The only way I know how to demonstrate that is with muscle biofeedback. Or the other way you can do it is, as you're sitting like that, stop for a moment, take a breath, really notice, let the shoulders and arms drop, feel the weight hanging from the elbows. And sometimes you can notice, oops, I could let that go more. If you had that experience, then you were holding tension the whole time. If you like, I can guide people through an exercise, which is not possible while driving, where everybody can experience this. It will take maybe 20 seconds. Let's do this. This sounds fun. Okay. Sit comfortably in front of your keyboard, holding the mouse in your hand next to the keyboard. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to draw the letters of your street address with the mouse. However, draw them in the backward order. So if my address is Derby Street, the first letter I draw is the letter T, then the letter E, and then again E, etc. And the task is I draw the letter with the mouse, then I click, and then I do the next letter. However, the height of each letter needs to be less than a half inch, preferably only a quarter inch. If the task is clear, I like you to start now. Just do it and do it as quickly as possible. Don't make a mistake. Quicker, quicker. Be sure you click after every letter. Quicker. Do it more. That's probably enough. Notice when you were doing this, what did you experience? Did you notice you held your breath? Did you notice you tightened your shoulder and arm? Did you notice the whole body stiffened? It happened automatically without any awareness. That's how we often work. No wonder we get exhausted by the end of the day. How do we develop awareness? How, how should people go about the process of identifying the evolutionary traps that are built into these little tiny things in their lives? Well, I think we just did one of them. I often recommend for people to do something more excessively than you normally would do. We just did a little funny exercise to become aware. Once you know that, then you can realize, oops, I'm reacting. I can keep checking. Another one is like looking at the screen. Bring your eyes, get your nose really to the screen. Follow every line in detail. Really look carefully. Don't miss anything. Keep looking. 
And often what happens is our head goes toward the screen, our neck tightens, our eyes stay open, they become slightly cooler. You can feel the cooler air against the eyes, the sclera, and then stop. Those are kind of behavioral ways by which you aggravate what you normally do to see your own pattern. Once you realize that, then you develop strategies to reduce it less. Eric, you're good at talking to people about these, about identifying these issues. What's the evolutionary trap that you still struggle with? My biggest trap is that once I'm captured, I am just captured by the screen. (laughs) (laughs) And so the biggest one is I have put on a stretch program and I have trained myself that every time it goes up, I interrupt. So if in the middle, I would just stop. And all the listeners, if you've been sitting the whole time, just wiggle and move for a moment. Just interrupt. You know, the hardest part to do, which I've observed, even when I, you know, at home with my wife and we're sitting and we happen to be watching something on, on a screen, is we tend to sit on the couch. What I now have done is because when I sit on the couch, I just sit there like a slug. I've done two things. I put a pillow behind my lower back, so I now sit up more. That will give me almost covertly more energy. And two, I often sit on the floor and do stretches while watching the program. (laughs) That's Eric Pepper. His new book with Rick Harvey and Nancy Foss is called Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping and Pragmatic Ergonomics. And you can get it wherever you buy your books, but please do try to support your local independent bookstore. Eric Pepper, it was so great to be able to chat with you again. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really hope that people will use some of the concepts to improve their health in this exciting digital world. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday morning at 1030 on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.